So if you're on a title for this morning's message, I've got it, Don't Waste Your Giving. And I'd be grateful at least to start off with, if you turn with me please, to Matthew chapter 6. You know, in the adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Arthur Cannon Doyle's classic detective stories, one of the things that Sherlock Holmes regularly says to Dr. Watson is, Dr. Watson, you see, but you don't perceive. And it's his kickback for nearly all the different things that he does. There's this one famous incident where, where they're walking up the stairs together. He says, Dr. Watson, are we walking up the stairs? He says, yes, we're certainly walking up the stairs. He says, wonderful. How many stairs are there? He says, I have no idea. He's like, Dr. Watson, how many times have you walked up these stairs? And I've been thousands and thousands and thousands of times. So Dr. Watson, how many are there? And he's got no idea. And his punchline, once again, was, Dr. Watson, you see, you don't perceive. And the truth is, I think when it comes to giving, as Christians, we can be very similar to Dr. Watson Calvin. We give, and we see the offering basket up until this morning go around every single week. Many of us even give online, and yet I still think it's possible to give and see, but still not perceive, still not understand why we're doing these things, why they're important, biblically defined, why the Bible calls us to give in the first place. And so today I want to really answer the question, why do we give? Why did Jesus spend 15% of his recorded words in scripture talking about treasures or money or giving? That gives you some insights into how significant giving and money is as biblically defined. And why is giving as biblically defined classed as such a means of grace? Why is it treasured and championed in scripture? Because it is. Well, that's what I want us to look at this morning. So let's pray, and then we'll get into it together. Well, Lord, it is a joy to be gathered around your word, to sit under your kingship again, to be aware that as we re-speak your word, it is indeed you speaking to us afresh, it's you encountering this small local church here in Sydney. And Lord, you have your way then amongst us. Holy Spirit, would you soften our hearts? Would you envision our hearts, encourage our hearts? Lord, have your way as we seek to understand afresh. Why do we give? Amen. So why do we give? Why is this something that's treasured and classed as important as sovereign grace? Well, there are many reasons, but today I want to look at just four. There are many reasons that actually the Bible gives us. But I want to look at four, and I want to look at four opportunities that giving really affords us. Four things, that it, four reasons to why this champion. So much in the Bible for opportunities that I think seen correctly will envision us, for giving afresh, will encourage us, and will also invigorate us as we realise giving is a profound, a profound opportunity as biblically defined. So why do we give? Number one, giving gives us an opportunity to point our hearts to things above. That's the first reason why we give. That's the first reason why it's championed in the Bible, because it gives us an opportunity to point our hearts to things above. And look with me then at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. I love this scene. Jesus is on a Galilean mountainside. He's communicating with the disciples and those around. And this is what he says to them. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, 
Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, as Jesus pulls us 2,000 years on around that Galilean mountainside and talks to us about the importance of allocating treasures and understanding how to interact with our hearts, if we truly see what he's saying there, I think we'd be overwhelmed. Because he says some incredible things. He says, it's oh, so easy to think of that when we get to heaven, when it comes to rewards, there's going to be a one-size-fits-all. You ever thought about that? I mean, I remember the first time I flew with British Airways. It's the first time I actually flew anywhere. And I got myself sat down, and I was on the very first seat as the stewardess came down. And so she gave me this bag. And I thought, this is awesome. This could be because it's my first time. So I opened up the bag, and there was a toothbrush in there, and a bag, and I thought, this is Absolutely legend. I'm flying British Airways again. And as I sort of delved into the bag, I think a pack of crisps in there, which for me was like, I'm in heaven. I'm flying British Airways every time. So I opened this bag, which is these awesome things, and as I got my face out of the bag, I look around to my disgust and find everybody's got a bag. And everybody's got the same bag. Well, I think we can think of heaven as like that. That we all get in, we all take our seats, and then God just says, oh, well done, here's your that's not the case. It's good to be Nowhere do we see that in the Bible. Which is why Jesus himself, in verses 19 and 20, says to us very clearly as Christians, don't store up for yourselves treasures here. That's pointless. Because moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Think about that day. Divest in this day so that you may be investing in that day. And then in verse 21... He gets to the very crescendo, I believe, of what he's saying when he says that where your treasure is, that your heart will be also. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Why? Because where your heart is, that your treasure will be also. You know, when he talks about the heart, whenever you see in the New Testament somebody talking about the heart, they're meaning the inner self, they're meaning the true self, meaning actually who you are. And so if we get say to somebody, you know what, oh, I'm, just, I'm really enjoying getting to know them. We're never referring to how we're really enjoying to get to know their toe, or their arm, or their chin. We're talking about their heart, aren't we? We're talking about who they are. Paul Tripp says it this way. He says, the Bible uses heart to describe the inner person. Scripture divides the human being into two parts, the inner and the outer being. The outer person is your physical self, the inner person is your spiritual self. The synonym the Bible most often uses for the inner being is the heart. It encompasses all the other terms and functions used to describe the inner person, spirit, soul, mind, emotions, will, and so forth. These other terms do not describe something different from the heart, rather they are aspects of it, parts or functions of the inner person. Listen. The heart, then, is the real you. It is the essential core of who you are. Though we put a tremendous amount of emphasis on the outer person, we must always remember that the true person is the person within. Isn't that profound? So when Jesus is saying where your treasure is, there is your heart, he's saying where your treasure is, is the real you. This is actually who you are. What matters to you? What's important to you? The very soul of your emotions and your being and your very personhood. And one of the things you find in the Bible and in history and in culture 
is our treasures and our, and our hearts are intrinsically linked. And so in the Old Testament, in Joshua chapter 7, you come across this guy called Achan. Achan's a soldier from the tribe of Judah, and he pretty much single-handedly ends up getting some of the Israelite army actually destroyed and put to death. The way he does that is because when he's invaded Jericho along with the Israelite army, God makes it very clear to them, do not take anything from Jericho. Everything must remain. Nick Aiken decides, I'd really like the look of that piece of gold. I'd really like the look of that 200 pieces of silver. And that Babylonian garment, I want that. And so he steals them. He puts them in his bag and off he goes to war. And God ends up destroying half of the Israelite army because of his sin. And it is found out he ends up losing his own life as well. Why did that come about? Well, because Achan's heart was in stuff. And that was more important to him than following Jesus. See the same in the book of Kings. We get introduced to a guy called Solomon, King David's son, an incredible king. And yet he shipwrecked his faith. Why? Because of a love for women and a love for money. And that ended up costing him his very walk with the Lord as those things became more important to him, as he began to covet those things and just desire those things more than anything else. In Acts chapter 5, you see Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, this is just a full-on piece of scripture for us. This couple in the church, dear couple in the church, they say, you know what, we're going to sell our piece of land and we want to give it to you. And we want to give it to you so that it can be distributed amongst the church and amongst the poor. So the apostles are like, this is great. Thanks for doing that. We didn't expect to do that, but thank you. They sell a piece of land, and they only give half of it to the church. They had vowed to give all of it. They only gave half of it. They only gave half of it because when the push came to shove, they loved money. And they still felt they being genuine. And so God calls them to account, calls them before the apostles, and says, did you give all the money you said you were going to? And they said, yes, we did. And as a result of their lying, they dropped dead before the Lord in that moment. Our treasures and our hearts are intrinsically linked in the Old Testament. People that are coveting money, people that are lying to cover their tracks because money is the be-all and end-all to them. And the same is true, I believe, in modern-day society. In 1929, when the Great Wall Street market crash took place, many, many men who were working in the stock exchange ended up committing suicide. They felt that their lives wouldn't be worth living if they didn't still have the money. And the same happened in 2008 when the global financial crisis came. The acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, the chief executive officer of Sheldon Good, the headline executive of Bear Stearns, to name just a few, all men that gave their lives, they suicided themselves. Because as they realised they were losing their money, for them they were losing their life. In the Bible, and in history, and in life, our hearts, and our treasures, what we own, are intrinsically linked. So how kind of the Lord, knowing that then, to pull us onto a Galilean mountainside and tell us, you know what? But not only are your hearts and your treasures intrinsically linked, but I want to tell you what to do with them for my glory. I want to tell you what to do with them for your good. And so he says to all those that are listening, including ourselves, right up front, don't lay up for yourself treasures here on earth. Because if you do that, your treasure will be here on earth. You will give your whole life here on earth. And what's the point in that? 
Because moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But instead, understanding that your treasures and your hearts are intrinsically linked, his main point is this. We should give. Because giving is an opportunity to point our hearts to things above. When we take our treasures and we invest them into the kingdom of the God, when we take our treasures and we invest them into heaven, like he's calling us to do, what he's telling us is, you know what will happen then? Your hearts will go there. You'll be kingdom-minded. You'll be heaven-minded, the very thing he wants us to do. You know, when you see that, and when you see giving like that, it not only becomes important, it becomes such an incredible and valuable opportunity, doesn't it? See, my heart, unless it's completely different to yours, is constantly tempted to take this world as home. Have you noticed that in your own life? To think that surely this is it. And then we get duped into thinking that therefore, because this is it, my whole life is, is here. And so I've got to get a great home. I've got to make sure I can get the best home I possibly can. And then secondarily, I've got to make sure I haven't got the best home I can. I fill it with all my favourite stuff. And I've got to get a great career to fund my great home and my great stuff. And then because I'll be so tired because of my great career, I've got to travel the world. Because this is all there is. And so I want to make sure I can see everything I possibly can in my lifetime. And when you sit that Christian down and you say, do you believe this is home? They'd say, no, I believe heaven is home. But can you see the danger that, that comes to every single Christian, particularly when we have wealth? Our greatest danger as Christians is not that we'll be persecuted by the world. Our greatest danger as Christians, I believe, is that we'll be seduced by the world. Into thinking that this is and so my whole life has got to be here. I've got to do everything I possibly can here because surely this is it. We don't believe that with our mind. We don't believe it in our heart. And yet we should get seduced to believing it in the way we live. A.W. Tozer speaks into that, I think, so carefully and helpfully. He says, The church is constantly being tempted to accept this world as home. But if she is wise, she will consider that she stands in the valley between the mountain peaks of eternity past and eternity to come. For the past is gone forever, and the present is passing as swift as the shadow on the sundial of Ahaz. For even if the earth should continue a million years, but one of us could stay to enjoy it. Listen to this. And so we would do well to think of the long tomorrow. I love that. As Christians, we are constantly tempted to take this world as home, and yet we would do well to think of the long tomorrow. You know what Jesus then does to that? He says, listen, you want to think about the long tomorrow? Great! Give. Why? Because when you give, and you saw treasures in heaven, your very heart will go towards the long tomorrow. Your heart will go with it. You'll start to invest your life understanding that Jesus is your king and that it isn't really about the world, but it's all about that. And where your treasure is, there is your heart. So use your giving to set your heart on the things above. Is that incredible or what? Doesn't it make the opportunity of giving slightly differently rather than just a basket going around you? Really, this is an indication of where my heart can be at. I want to give to you because I want my heart to be the right day. I don't want to get bogged down with thinking that this is it. When I know it's not, I want to use giving to point my heart to things above. But that's not all giving affords us. Number two, giving gives us an opportunity 
to make a difference in gospel mission. I love that. Giving not only helps us adjust our hearts as Christians, vital though that is, it gives us an opportunity to actually make a very real, a very tangible difference in gospel mission. And that's something that's been taking place for hundreds and thousands of years. You see, throughout salvation history, God has called on his people to support his work through giving. It's always been there. If you read your Bible, it's always been there. In the Old Testament, God's people were called upon to give a tithe, or a first tenth of their income to the Lord, money that would then be given to the temple very specifically, and it would then be used for the maintenance of the temple, for the equipping of the temple, making sure it's all good to go. It would be used for the support of the Levites and the priests, the people that were giving themselves full-time to serve in the temple. And it would be used for gospel mission both in the temple and beyond the, beyond the temple into different degrees in different forms. And so in the Old Testament, everybody would take a tenth of what they had and they would give it to the Lord. Well, in the New Testament, under grace-giving, without doubt, giving to support the work of the church, the new temple of God, remained an absolute priority and expectation on all believers. Nothing changed. They didn't miss a beat. It's just they no longer gave into the temple, they gave into the new temple, namely the local church. And so they started to give to support the church itself and the church's leaders. So 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5, we read about that. People starting to give and lay it at the apostles' feet so that the church could be built up and so that men could give themselves full time to building into the church and teaching the church and equipping the saints with works of ministry. In Philippians 4 and Romans 15, we then see giving in the New Testament to support the extension of the gospel. People giving not only to their local church, but those local churches then sending men out to build churches beyond their walls. Literally taking the gospel in church form to the ends of the earth. In 2 Corinthians 9, in Acts chapter 4, we see them giving to support the needs of the poor. I love Acts chapter 4. People are falling over themselves to give. It's being laid at the apostles' feet. The apostles are distributing it out and it says that no one had need. They were so generous that they're giving to the poor. Well, my friends, 2,000 years on, here's the incredible thing that I think is mind-blowing. Those in the Old Testament have all died. Those in the New Testament have all died. But we're still here. In salvation history, Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham, and Moses, and Jacob, and Peter, and Paul, and Andrew, and all the great disciples, they've all gone. But now as a local church, we're the body. Now as a local church, we've been moved on to deliver our lines. And when we deliver our lines through giving, real and tangible gospel mission still takes place, doesn't it? You know, as we come then to give in a couple of weeks towards our Go Forward Fund. We take an offering for the Go Forward Fund and we consider the year ahead. I want you to know, when we give to this, it makes a tangible difference. If we give towards taking on a family life pastoral into that will help this church grow. It will help us grow in a way that will build the gospel ever increasingly into our families, into our marriages, into our single years, into our retirement years. It will help us care for our group leaders and our small groups much better and in doing that, it will help free up my time to be able to give more time and attention to helping us really plant more churches and train them for that task. When we give to ICN, 
we've heard so wonderfully from Jessica today. It's not like it's just money and then it's gone. It's making a tangible difference in people's lives. Just like in Acts 4, we're giving in a way to care for the poor, care for the widows, and ensure that they're receiving something of what we experience as a regular everyday experience. Food and water and health and medication and health. And I love what Jessica said, that when ICM pull out, because it's so local church-driven, the church remains. It's one of the primary reasons why we support that ministry. Always wanted us to care for the poor and needy. To know that's happening through the local church, that's what I see in the New Testament. And I want to be biblical. But we give to Sovereign Grace Ministries. Or we give to our family of churches and help other churches plant like we do. The gospel goes forward in other nations and in other places and at other times. Do you understand? This is tangible stuff. When we give, it not only affects our heart and points it to things above, but it actually makes a tangible difference in the gospel going forward. Does that envision you? Does that encourage you? Makes it far different than just a basket going round, doesn't it? This is an opportunity, a divine opportunity to have to deliver my lines for the glory of the Lord. And here's the third reason. Then. Giving gives us an opportunity to trust God. And oh my word, how it does this, doesn't it? However well off you are, even if you live in a big home with a big salary, living in that big home will be costing you a fortune. And so by very nature, when it comes to give then, we all have to find a trust in God, do we not? Otherwise we say, we just can't afford it. Yeah, I earn a lot, but I live in the most expensive city of the world in the most expensive area. What can I do? Turn with me, please, then, to Mark chapter 12. I think Jesus wants to encourage us in what it is to trust him in the midst of giving. And I love this. In Mark chapter 12, verse 41, come across a beautiful story of a widow and her incredible confidence in the Lord. In verse 41, this is what happens. It's the words of Jesus. He says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty was putting everything she had, all she had to live on. That's incredible. And that isn't a parable. She's not painting a picture there of something, you know, it's like the man. No, he's saying, I sat by the treasury one day, Here's what happened. He must have been sitting pretty close. He's watching what people are doing. And yet that's what he's doing. Jesus and his disciples are in the temple courts. They're by the treasury. The treasury would basically be filled with 13 very large brass treasure chests. This is where people would give their offerings. Now we have a small black box with red offertory on it. But it's, you know, the same idea. In the Old Testament they have these majestic chests and they'd be like horns. Virgin horns that have a hole in the top, and people would come and they would give their offering to the temple. And as Jesus watches this day, and he looks on on this day of what is taking place, he's to start off with grieved by what he sees, because there are many rich people coming 
And they're giving, but they're just giving out of their wealth. They're just creaming off a bit at the top. It really is no sacrifice them at all. Not just that, it would appear in the way it's written that there's a fair degree of pomp and circumstance happening here. So this would be Passover time, so it would be very busy. And it would appear that these people are walking in, you know, just to let you know, it'd be like somebody going over to that box and, just to let you know, Sovereign Grace, I'm just about to give. Thank you, yes, I'm giving. And then, then giving it all in one set of pieces so it seems bigger and bigger. That's what the rich people are doing. They're using this to showboat their wealth and they are creaming off something that really doesn't make much difference to them. And Jesus is grieved. But then this old woman wearing tacky clothing, which is what would mark her out as a poor widow, goes up to the box and does something that clearly Jesus loves. She takes two small copper coins, mites, or lepters as they commonly be known. To us, they'd be worth about one thirtieth of a cent. But to her, this is everything she's got. And she goes and she puts it in the box. And Jesus is quite clearly, in the way he's reporting this, thrilled. He's delighted with her. This to him is more special and more incredible than all the rich people who've gone before, that have given far, far more. See, this poor widow is such an example to us of sacrifice, isn't she? She didn't just give some of what she had. She gave everything. Randy Alcorn, in his, one of his books, Money Returns to Possessions, says, you know what, if you were there, how would you have advised the poor widow? You know what I would have done? I would have stood by the offering box and go, no, don't do it, it's all you've got left. You've got to live. Yet for her, that this is all I've got left. But I understand that it's the Lord's. The question for all of us as Christians, including this widow, was not, Lord, how much do you want me to give of my money? The question for this widow is, Lord, how much do you want me to give back to you of your money? Because everything I have is yours. Everything I own is actually yours. She knew full well that Psalm 50 verse 12 it says, for the world is mine and all that is in it. And what's so endearing then about this poor widow is she acts on it, doesn't she? She lays it out. It isn't just talk for her. She's saying, okay, I believe that everything is yours and so I'm going to take everything I've got and I'm going to give you it. She's an incredible sacrifice example for us, isn't she? But more than that, I think the thing that's most endearing about her is she is such an example, I believe, of trusting God. She was a widow. She would be easily recognisable as a widow given the tatty clothing that she'd been living in. There's no welfare state. She can't pop along to Centrelink and draw money out. There's no husband. And it would appear there's no family around her either. She is totally alone. An evidence of what she's got on. And if she gives away everything she's got. What an example of trusting God, don't you think? And no wonder then the Saviour, the one who is God, no wonder then he's delighted with Because he understood you're giving away everything you've got because you trust him. You trust that everything really in the world is mine and that I will care for your needs. In the same way I clothe the lilies of the field, I will care, to, care for you. She believes it. So she gives away all she has. She is profoundly vulnerable in what she's doing. 
but she does it in sacrifice of faith. She believes in God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. She believes that they'll take care of her. You know, my friends, one of the good things about this story is it's not designed to say, go and do likewise. Otherwise, my instruction to us all would be quite different to that which is going to be in this moment. It's not designed nor given to us as a picture of therefore, because she gave away everything she had, you go and do likewise. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that for a reason, because that is not the instruction of the Saviour. And yet what it does do, I think, is give us a wonderful and profound picture of how giving gives us an opportunity to trust God. And it's provocative, isn't it? And my friends, I submit to you, teaching can do so many things. When preaching is out there and people are preaching God's word and reminding us what God's word says, that can have a powerful effect. And yet there are so many things that can only be solidified in our lives when we actually do them. That's when the adventure begins. That's when we realise God can be trusted. I remember this happening in my life. I was 19 years old. I was due to get married in October of 2000, no, not 2000, 1996. And in August of 1996, the girl that I was getting married to, that was also working in a bank, enabled us to buy a house together and get a car together. Six weeks before we were to get married, we decided she didn't love me and didn't want to pursue it at all. I left university. I had barely any income. I was reliant on her. And when she left me, she left me with a house that had a big debt and a car that had a big debt. And I remember in tears, it was just such a difficult and troubling time in my life. It was a time that God used in my life to help me see that this really is amazing grace. And that it was a time in my life that I wouldn't wish on anybody but transform my life. But I remember one of the things happening in that time in my life is I phoned my dad and I said, Dad, financially, this is a bit of a mayday. I was earning, I got a job, which, which meant that I was earning £7,000 a year. I was earning £125 after tax every week. That was it. It didn't even cover my mortgage. And I remember phoning my dad and saying, Dad, I have no idea what I'm going to do financially. And he said, well, let me ask you a question. How's your giving? I said, Dad, this isn't a good time to bring up giving. I'm trying to find out from you how you're going to bail me out in this problem or what the heck I'm going to do. And he said, you know what? Son, I want to encourage you in your giving. And I'm so grateful for my dad. So grateful that he was unwavering in his confidence in this towards his son. And I said, Dad, I haven't been given for a long time. There's no way I can afford it. And he said, well, son, how big then is your God? And I was challenged. I was provoked. And so that week, I gave my £12.50, my tithe, and I wasn't the widow, but for me, it was a lot of money. I'm not even making ends meet as it was. And so I gave my £12.50, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to, I do believe it, so I'm, I'm going to trust God. And I remember that week somehow, and I have no idea, I generally don't know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not bad with figures, but I have no idea how it worked. But I didn't go without. It, sort of, it was all okay. Remember the week after, I gave my £12.50 again. 
I was paid a weekly at that point, and they gave me 12 pounds 50. Again, unto the Lord. I remember one of the ladies at work saying, hey, babe, do you need a sofa? And I'm like, for sure, I'm sitting on the ground every week. And I said, but the only thing is I can't get it to my house because I, I can't get your money to. And she said, well, when my new sofa gets delivered, they said that they would take my old sofa to anywhere that I want. Oh, you can drop it off in my house. So I'm sitting on this sofa, and somebody else said, do you want a TV? I'm like, a TV? This would be awesome. So I ended up with this TV and a sofa, and to me, I'm like in heaven. I'm 19 years old. This is, like, this is great. I gave my 12 pound fifty. About week four was when my manager pulled me in and said, hey, we should talk about a promotion. You're just doing so well. And at that same time, my brother said, I want to come to university in Cardiff. How do you feel about me moving in with you and paying rent? I'm like, this, this is awesome. Yes, I would love a promotion. And yes, I would love you to pay rent. And you know, as the weeks went on and on and on, I never went without. All my needs were met. And yet my income kept increasing and increasing and increasing. And yet ever since that day, for me in my home, we've tied. Because of my father's instruction from this word. And I've taken God seriously and said, I don't need you. I say that as a story because there's some things I can't teach you. You need to do it yourself. And it's only as you do it that you will discover God of the Bible is true. He will care for all my needs. He will bless me. He will help me. And you'll have your own adventure. That's the adventure I believe that widow was on in that moment. My adventure happened 21 years ago and still happens to this day living in one of the most expensive parts of the expensive city in the world. It's not easy. But I want to encourage you, God is faithful. So trust Him. Giving gives us an opportunity to trust God, to go on adventure with Him and you will find He's faithful. And finally, number four, last but certainly not least, Giving gives us an opportunity to do something that God loves. And I love this. And to be honest, if all the other reasons to give didn't even exist, this one alone, I think, should fuel a thousand giving moments for us. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. One year prior to Paul penning the letter of 2 Corinthians, the Corinthian church committed to taking up an offering for the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem Christians are struggling, they're undergoing famine, and they did persecution. They are, without doubt, on the ropes. And so Paul wants to collect an offering from the Gentile churches to give to the Jerusalem church as an expression of our solidarity, of an expression of standing together in the gospel. And the Corinthian church kindly agree to that. They want to do that and they want to give. And so Paul writes this letter to them to remind them of their commitment to give, to inform them that he's on his way. And so if you could get that offering together, that would be really neat. And while he writes, he also uses the opportunity to encourage them and exhort them in the opportunity that their giving affords them. So in chapter 8, he seeks to stir their faith by talking to them about the Macedonia church, a church that was incredibly poor, and yet a church that had given not only according to their means, but beyond their means, because they wanted to bless those in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 9, Paul starts to talk theology with them and explains to them what 
it's all about. The primary reason why this opportunity to give is so incredible for them. He says this then from verse 6. He says, the point is this. You want to get people's attention, that's what you say. Here's the point. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And he says this. Here's why. For God loves a cheerful giver. Friends, therein lies, I think, the primary and most incredible reason why we should give. Because when we give, and when we realise our giving actually does make a difference in gospel mission, our giving actually does make a difference in pointing our hearts to things above, our giving does engage us in an adventure with God, showing that whereby He will show that He is faithful. You know what happens if we give cheerfully? We give expectantly because we want to, because we're excited about it. And what it says here is God loves that. He looks on just like Jesus did, offers him that treasure, knowing all things. And says, Simon does. I love that. I love him. See, just the right time, friends, the Father sent his son. The Father was dwelling in perfect and glorious unity with His Son. They were enjoying a relationship like we can never even imagine at this point in time. And yet Father and Son dwelt in perfect unity, perfect joy, perfect celebration. And yet in grace, when the time was right, He sent forth the Son, and the Son freely and willingly came. He came on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He came to the birth canal of a Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life and died on the cross in shame and in pain, making it clear that through faith in Him we may have life and that in abundance. We may have forgiveness of sin, our sin to be removed as far as the east is from the west, that we may be adopted into the very family of God, that we may be reconciled to Him, that we may know that heaven is our home, And as and when we put our faith in him, what he does is he then comes to reside in the personal work of God the Spirit in our lives as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Salvation really is all of grace, isn't it? The only thing we bring to it is our sin. He brings everything else. All we bring is all the things that we've done wrong. He brings everything else, even our faith. Well, in giving, we have the opportunity to ensure that that Godhead looks on at your life and says, I love that. And that's the giving and the opportunity that giving affords us. An opportunity to please God. Therefore, my friends, I want to encourage you as another year of giving stretches out in front of us, don't waste it. Don't just see it. Perceive it. Don't just think of this as, oh, it's another year of go forward fund. Yeah. Oh, it's another year of online giving. Yeah. Perceive it. 
It's an opportunity in our lives given to us by God to point our hearts to things above, to ensure that we not get seduced by the world, but instead we live with a heavenly mindset. It's an opportunity to make a difference in gospel mission, both at home and abroad. It's an opportunity as we do it in faith to trust God, believing that I believe you can help me and I'm going to need your help as I give generously like this. So Lord, help me. And as we do each of those things, it's an opportunity to do something that God loves. So let's not just see, let's perceive. Amen? And would we be encouraged and envisioned and infused in and our giving as another year stretches out in front of us? Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for the way your word clarifies things in our minds. It's intensely practical and it does envision us and encourage us in our lives. Lord, would you forgive us and help us for where we are in so weakness being seduced by the world? Would you help us from wrongly accepting this as home? And Lord, help us to be people who are mindseted with things above. Lord, our life in this earth is at best momentary. It's like a dew that rises up in the morning, the wind blows, and it's gone. Lord, while we are here then, help us to live for your glory. Help us to live, not for riches or man's approval, but for your glory. Help us to live for the audience of one. And Lord, would you give us grace to do these things? Lord, this isn't a moment where we need to muster up things in ourselves and determination in ourselves. It's a moment when we need your grace. So Lord, would you give us that grace as we pray fresh about what to give in the year to come. Lord, give us grace. Help us to steward the money that you have entrusted to us, which is all of it, and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.